we have a problem. Our world is in trouble. This is not difficult to see if you have eyes. There's civil unrest and upheaval. Unrighteousness is celebrated. Immorality is celebrated. There's a global health crisis. Anybody who looks around can see that things are not going well. The problem in our world is not a political problem. Our problem is not economical or sociological. Our problem is not even the pandemic. The problem is not systems of structural oppression. The problem is not a lack of education. The problem is not income inequality. The problem is sin. Sin is the problem that plagues humanity. All of the issues in our world today are not simply the shortcomings of Western society. They're a result of the sinfulness and depravity of humanity. It's not the external factors that cause the brokenness in our world. It's the brokenness of the world that is caused by the internal condition of mankind. This is what Jesus said. He said, out of the heart of mankind comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus said, the problem's not out there. The problem is in here. Sin is not just the things that we do. The problem is much deeper than that. Sin is who, at the core of who we are. The Bible declares that human beings are sinners by nature. By nature. Our, our natural inclination left to ourselves would to, be, to choose sin. Not only are we sinners by nature, but we are sinners by choice. Daily humanity makes the choice, the, the conscious decision to rebel against God and to sin. To the point where even the standards that we use to, to try to measure righteousness and unrighteousness, the, the standards we use to try to measure what is right and, and what is wrong and what is good and, and what is evil, that, that even these standards have been corrupted by sin. So that the great... See, if humanity today is self-deceived into thinking that we are not as sinful as we really are. The self-deception is also sin, the Bible declares. Sin not only produces the brokenness that we see in our world today, the, the ultimate result of sin, the Bible declares, is death. The wages of sin is death. Sin produces a terminal condition in humanity. Sin is much more deadly than COVID-19, which has a 1% mortality rate. The virus of sin has a 100% mortality rate. Everyone who sins dies. 
100%. Complete and total. The condition is not only terminal, it's also universal. The Bible declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some have sinned, not a few have sinned, not even most have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A terminal condition, a universal condition. And to make matters worse, there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. We can do nothing to improve our condition before a righteous and holy God. The Apostle Paul put it, puts it this way, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Completely and totally unable to do anything to clean ourselves up, to fix ourselves, to alleviate this condition. We have no power or ability whatsoever to make things right. Humanity is lost and hopelessly lost, dead in sin. And if all of that was not bad enough, sin makes us enemies of God. Almighty God hates sin. Words fail to describe how intensely God burns with righteous anger against sin and sinners, the Bible declares. God is not simply miffed or TO'd or rubbed the wrong way. Through sin, humanity has declared war on the holy God. We can begin to understand some of God's righteous anger against sin and sinners as we also burn with anger against the most heinous sins of humanity. Anger stirred up in our hearts when we read stories about injustice, when we read stories about the pedophile and the rapist and the child abuser and the murderer. We too, with a sense of justice, burn with righteous anger. We can understand a little bit of, of God's feeling towards sin. Yet God's wrath against sin is not only reserved to the categories of what we would call the big sins. God's wrath burns against all sin. Even what we would consider to be, you know, tolerable, not that bad, just kind of a gray area. Things like lying or cheating or stealing, dishonoring of parents, or coveting what your neighbor has. The Bible declares that all of these are sin and that God hates them. This is difficult for us to comprehend. Why? Because we are so morally compromised. This bristling that we have against God's wrath against sin shows us just how compromised we really are. Just how sinful we really are and just how holy God is. The Bible declares that because of sin, humanity is lost, blind, dead, damned, doomed, and destined for the eternal conscious torments of hell of which Jesus said the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched. We have a problem. Yet at the same time, 
The scripture also declares to us that the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God merciful, God gracious, God slow to anger, God abounding in steadfast love. God who forgives sin, but who does not clear the guilty. How can this be? How can God be both loving and slow to anger and forgiving of sins, but at the same time be just? How can God both forgive sin and not pardon the guilty? This is the great mystery of the Old Testament. God had revealed himself as both compassionate and slow to anger, yet also holy and just and righteous. And the question is, how can a holy God have fellowship with sinful humanity without compromising his holiness? The solution to this problem is found only in one place. It is found in the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross shows us how God can be perfectly loving and perfectly just at the same time. It's at the cross that God himself pays our debt of sin. God does not overlook sin. God does not ignore sin. God does not sweep sin under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. On the contrary, the exact opposite is true. God bears our sin burden. God takes our sin upon himself. Jesus pays our penalty. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, high and exalted. Jesus, God. Jesus, the creator. Jesus, the one by whom all things were made. Jesus, the author and giver of life, leaves heaven's throne to be born in a manger, to be born in a stable, to be born as a frail human being. He comes from heaven to earth, he, he adds to his divinity, humanity, God clothed in human flesh, 
for one purpose, to go to the cross, to pay the price for our sin. Paul says that he didn't die just any death. He died the death of the cross, that fateful event. That's why we're here tonight. It's why we're gathered tonight to remember the cross, to remember the broken body, to remember His shed blood. We see in the Scriptures the the story of of Jesus standing before Pilate, being brought as a criminal, being bought as a sinner, being being brought and falsely accused as, as an instigator, as a rebel. He stands before Pilate and Pilate examines him and and he says, I find no fault with this man. Of course he couldn't find fault with him. He's the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Not only had Jesus committed no crime against Rome, Jesus had never committed a sin against God. Yet the crowds cry out, crucify him, crucify him. In an effort to appease the crowd, Pilate thinks that he can somehow not have a riot on his hands that that maybe instead of having Jesus crucified, he can have him scourged. He he could satiate their their bloodlust by scourging Jesus. Scourging, the Bible tells us, was such a brutal punishment that many died from it before, they, before even making it to the cross. This was a penalty, a punishment, that, that by scourging, many people died themselves. History tells us that it was called the halfway death. For a man to be scourged, he was stripped naked, his hands tied above his head to a post, And a hardened Roman disciplinarian would take a nine-tailed whip called the cat of nine tails. At the end of each one of these tails, a strand of leather, and attached to it was shards of metal, broken glass, human bone, and large metal balls that would soften and tenderize muscle. And Jesus was whipped with this device of torture, not once, not twice. To be whipped with this once would be a life-altering event for any single one of us here tonight. But Jesus was whipped with this cat of nine tails 39 times. They would start at the top with their head And with this bone and metal and glass, they would rip straight down, ripping skin and muscle and bone. Jesus' vertebrae would have been completely exposed by the time that this was over. Once it would be completed, Jesus laid there in a pool of his own blood, beaten beyond recognition. Jesus endured all of this even before going to the cross. Isaiah 52, 14 says that his appearance 
was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. By the time they finished scourging him, Jesus didn't even look human anymore. Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing, symbolizing that he he declares himself to be innocent of this whole spectacle. They place a crown of thorns upon Jesus' head, pushing it down so that it penetrates the skin and would have even driven those thorns deep into his skull. They place a purple robe on Jesus, mocking him, mocking him as the king of the Jews. They bring Jesus out wearing the crown of thorns, wearing the purple robe. Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowds and says, Behold the man. Behold the man. Upon seeing this, the crowd was not satisfied, but they began to cry out all the more, Crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate gives the order for him to be hauled off to be crucified. The cross was reserved as the most painful method of execution for the most despised of people, for terrorists, for murderers, for rapists, for child molesters. This is who the cross was reserved for. Jesus, of course, never once having sinned. The pain of crucifixion crucifixion is so horrendous that a word was invented to describe it. It's the word excruciating. It literally means the pain from the cross. The pain of the cross is not that you have nails driven through your hands and your feet. That's not the true agonizing pain of the cross. The true pain is because it is a prolonged and agonizing death by asphyxiation. As you hang there, your body under its own weight, your your lungs begin to fill with liquid until you begin to labor to breathe. You can't breathe. Your, Your lungs collapse upon themselves. It is a slow death by being not able to breathe. Crucified people could hang on the cross anywhere from three to four hours for as long as nine days. They would pass in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggled to breathe while laboring under the weight of their body. To force themselves up to breathe, they drove nails into the feet of those being crucified so that they could press themselves up to fill their lungs with air. This was not a private affair. Crucifixions were done publicly in high traffic areas so as to put on display that this is what happens if you do this kind of thing. Think of this being done not not behind closed doors, but out in public where there was a lot of foot traffic. And so Jesus is crucified just outside the city on the main road that goes into town. I know many times we, we see the picture of Jesus up on a hill somewhere and 
There's three crosses, and, but typically in Jesus' day, people were not crucified at an elevated position, but they were crucified at eye level so that as people walked by, they could mock them to their face. They could curse them in their eyes. They could spit upon them and beat them to add to their agony. Crucified at eye level. Many times people were not given a proper burial. Their bodies would hang on the cross for days. The birds would come and pick apart the dead and dogs would chew on the bones that fell to the ground. The ancient Jewish historian calls crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Jesus beaten beyond recognition. He carries the cross on his bare back. He's unable even to make the one mile journey. He falls and has to have a, a helper come and help him carry the cross. Upon walking to the site, they strip him naked. They mock him. We know his mother is there watching. We know John the disciple is there at her side. Seven inch metal spikes driven through his hands and his feet. And there hangs naked, suffering the ultimate shame, the perfect, sinless Son of God. Many would lose control of their bodily functions. This is a hideously grotesque scene and a total spectacle. And yet the crowds continue to mock him. They begin to cry out, he saved others but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If God even desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. It's Matthew chapter 27, verses 42 and 43. This is the shame that humanity bestowed upon the Son of God. This is the shame that we, in our sinful state, perpetrated upon the perfect man, Jesus Christ. This is beyond anything that you and I could ever bear to watch. Yet all of this physical pain and all of this suffering, it pales in comparison to the true horrors of what Jesus suffered on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is crucified, he, he falls three times before the Father in prayer, and he cries out, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was not crying out to God for salvation from the physical pain of the cross. Jesus was crying out, because he didn't want to drink the cup. What was the cup that Jesus was crying out about? What, what, what is this? Well, the Old Testament tells us about this cup. In this cup was stored up all of God's wrath, all of God's anger, all of God's righteous indignation against every sin that had ever and would ever be committed by humanity. God stored all of that up figuratively in this cup that the prophets talked about. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. 
The cup, in the cup was the sin of the world and God's wrath against sin. Jesus, who is holiness and purity personified, was made on the cross to drink of every act of evil, every injustice, every act of murder, rage, pride, unbelief, sexual perversion, filth, every lustful intent of the human heart, every sin you've ever committed, Jesus Christ tasted of that sin on the cross. We, we feel a little bit of the pain of what Jesus suffered when we ourselves sin. That, that, that conviction that we feel, that condemnation even that we feel, that brokenness that we feel because of sin. There have been things in my life that I've gone through that, that have been very painful physically. But none of them compare to the pain I have felt spiritually from the brokenness of my own sin in my life. This is the pain that Jesus felt on the cross. Jesus didn't walk around with this burden of pain every single day. Jesus had never felt what this feels like. He had never sinned. Yet added to Jesus on the cross was every moment of pain of sin for all time. Every, all of the sins of your life, every moment of them added to him, but not just your life, but every one of God's people's lives added to him, not just for the past, but also for the future, for our sin. He who knew no sin, he who had never felt the pain of separation that comes between the Father because of sin, had the sin of the world laid upon him. And on the cross, God the Father, all-powerful creator of the universe, poured out upon Jesus the full measure of his wrath against humans, humankind's sin. Jesus became the solitary object of God's intense hatred of sin and his vengeance against sin that he had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. This is why Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment that Jesus fears and, and bears the full weight of God's wrath. This is humanity's darkest hour. Yet in the midst of this immense darkness, the light of God's love shines through, shining brighter, blazing brighter than the sun itself. God's love on full display. As Jesus went to the cross, willingly, willingly Jesus goes to the cross. He didn't deserve the cross. He didn't have to hang there. You deserve the cross. I deserve the cross. He took our place. In the moment of our darkest moment, God's light shines through the brightest. His love put on full display. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is not only the justice of God, this is the love of God on full display. This is love, beaten, bleeding, and dying. On the cross, Jesus begins to pray. Jesus begins to cry out to God and His prayer is one of intercession. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is not angry. Jesus is not vengeful. Jesus is sorrowful. Jesus is crying out for the forgiveness of the sins of humanity. He doesn't curse. He blesses. He doesn't condemn. He intercedes. He receives our justice and offers to us His righteousness. Justice not for His sin, but for our sin. And Jesus there, suspended on the cross, interceding for humanity, He hangs there between two worlds, suspended on the cross, not quite touching earth, not quite touching heaven. Jesus there bridges the gap between heaven and earth. Jesus there hanging on the cross becomes the bridge, becomes the mediator between holy God and sinful humanity. How can a holy God, a God of justice, a God of righteousness, a God who burns against sin, how can He enter into a relationship and fellowship with fallen sinful humanity? It's only through the mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God. Jesus hangs there, suspended. We can't reach out to God, but God reaches down to us. We can't climb up to God, and so God comes down to us. We can't pay the price for our own sin, and so God pays the price for us. This is love. This is love. Love is not a, 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 a tingle in your spine. Love is not goosebumps. Love is not butterflies in your stomach. Love is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is love. This is love. Jesus, our mediator. Jesus, our savior. Jesus dying for the sins of his people to redeem us. To redeem us. What does all of this mean? What does the cross mean? It means that there is hope for humanity. It means that there is hope. Humanity is hopelessly lost in sin without Christ. But in Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is forgiveness of sin. Why? Because the payment and the penalty and the price has been paid by Jesus and paid in full. 
on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The work has been done. The price has been paid. There is nothing we can do except receive what He has done. He has paid the price. For every act of rebellion, for every act of disobedience, for every sin that we've committed, knowingly, unknowingly, sins of commission, things we've done, sins of omission, things we should have done but didn't do, Jesus paid the price. This also means that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. If you are in Christ today, God sees a new creation. God sees the righteousness of His Son applied to your account. When God sees you, He doesn't see a wretched sinner. God sees a redeemed saint. God sees the beautiful work of the cross as He looks down upon us. You know, this is the week of Passover, and Passover is this beautiful picture of, of how God, uh, how, how the Israelites were saved and, and how they had the blood applied to their house and the angel of death passed over those who had the blood of the lamb applied to their house. And the, the question for, for you tonight is, have you had the blood applied to your house? Do you have the blood of Jesus applied to your account? God offers salvation. God offers redemption. God offers healing and, and wholeness and fellowship with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus. He gives it away freely, a gift of grace. We simply believe in Christ and His work for us on the cross. God also set up in the in the wilderness uh, of, of, with the Israelites there after they came out of Egypt, uh, a tabernacle. And they had on the, the one day a year, a, a day of atonement. And on this day of atonement, the high priest who, who represented a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people, Jesus now, of course, our great high priest, but the high priest would, would take the blood of an animal and he would sacrifice that animal that represented the sins of God's people. And he would take the blood into the, beyond the veil that separated the presence of God from humanity. He, the high priest could go into God's presence once, one day per year. And he would go into this, this holy place, the holy of holies, carrying with him the blood. The Bible tells us that, that God's presence dwelled above the cherubim of this Ark of the Covenant. That God's physical presence dwelled in this space on earth. And in the Ark of the Covenant, what was in this, this golden box under where God's Spirit dwelled, it was the law. It was God's law, God's holy and righteous law. And for 364 days a year, God's presence dwelling above His law saw daily the shortcomings and the faults 
and the failures of humanity. Daily, God saw that humanity did not live up to His holy and righteous standard and that instead we rebelled against Him and that we sinned against Him. But one day a year, the the high priest would enter into this Holy of Holies and he would carry with him the blood and he would spread the blood over the Ark of the Covenant. And so one day a year, God looks down and and He doesn't see that we are sinful humanity who breaks His law, but one day a year, He looks down and He sees the blood. He, He sees this atoning sacrifice. And the question for us is, have you had the blood applied? Have you had the blood applied? Are you trying to earn your salvation? Are you trying to earn your right standing before God? Have you fell into the the false idea of thinking that you're a pretty good person and you don't really need religion? Listen, before a holy and a righteous God, all of us are in the same spot. We are condemned in our sin unless we've been washed in the blood unless we've had the blood applied to our account. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God takes the sin that you have have added to your account and he applies it to Christ's account. Christ who paid the price for sin on the cross. And he takes God's righteousness and he applies it to your account. It's the great exchange. It's the best deal going around. It's the best exchange that there is. Righteousness for unrighteousness, holiness for sin, this exchange, and we receive it by faith. It means that those of us who are in Christ today, when God sees us, he is not angry. When God sees us, he is not full of wrath. When God sees us, he sees his kids. He sees us perfected in Christ. Even though we still fall and fail as we all do, When we fall and fail, our sin and shortcomings apply to Christ. And so we walk with God daily, fellowship with God daily, set free of the curse of the law because Jesus became a curse for us when he hung on that tree. Now in Christ, we are all called to share in the death of Christ as we, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, put to death sin in our own lives. Jesus not only died to pay the price for sin, Jesus died to set us free from the power of sin and death. So if you are in Christ today, not only have you had your sins forgiven, but the power of sin in your life has been broken. Has been broken. The the, the sin of of your generations, the sin of your forefathers, the the sins that have been committed and and passed down to you through through the, the lineage of your life, broken at the cross, broken at the cross. So that Satan has no power over you. No power over you. So that Paul can write and declare with confidence that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was condemned on the cross for us. He paid the price. Every single price. There's not one cent that he did not pay for us. Every sin 
that we've ever committed, Jesus paid for. And so he calls us into a life of holiness, a life of righteousness. Why? Because we've been set free to share in his death, to die to sin so that we might live unto God. We do have a problem, but Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is the only answer. He is the only answer.